world we live in, this age of man. And he says in verse 11, They shall perish, but thou remainest, uh, speaking of Christ. And they all shall wax old as does a, doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. So Hebrews 1 makes it clear that there is no destiny for the Christian after he destroys this world. This world's coming to an end. And the only place we have is, is in the Father's house in those many mansions. So our city is the city of God off in the distance. We haven't got there yet. Verse 15 begins building on the assignment Christ's people have. They have ministries of service one toward another. And they collectively have ministries of worship toward God. Of course, even their mutual care for their brotherhood is an important part of their spiritual service to God both in their helping and sharing their resources in the church and in their constant expression of praise to God. They are manifesting their faith and their gratitude for salvation. In all they do, they are constantly aware of the intercession and spiritual care uh, the enthroned Christ expresses toward them in the fulfillment of his priestly ministries, ministrations. The whole thrust of the book of Hebrews has been uh, intended to remove the barriers to Christians in their relationship to God as acceptable worshipers. Through Christ, and that's a very uh, uh, common statement in the New Testament, through Christ we offer to God worship and service that is pleasing. It is the Christ who removes from our devotions the human limitations that makes our praise less than what it ought to be. All imperfections have been removed from the worshipers themselves and from uh, their less than uh, proper worship. The worship and service of Christians is... Uh, verbal and constant outpouring of gratitude. It is practical in the flow of good deeds and the needs among them. It is serving through doing good. Remember that doing good was one of the qualities of the life of Christ that made him winsome. Acts 10 verse 38. He went about doing good to all men. Thus the Christian becomes the living embodiment of the virtues, virtuous life seen in Jesus. One final sacrifice Christians offer is the sharing of their financial resources with one another. Uh, the Greek word for this act of charity is kanonoia, and it was always used by New Testament historians as the practical lifestyle of the early church. 
So as suggest, uh, so verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Uh, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So as was as suggested in the comment in verse 7, uh, most if not all of the apostles were dead when this book was written uh, that we saw last week. Though the present leaders have authority, they are not in any way successors of the apostles. There is no successors of the apostles, although the denominational world teaches that. The apostles do not need successors, for they still fulfill their apostolic ministrations through their message and the witness of their faith. They're the ones that was promised to sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the present leaders have been selected uh, uh, out of the number in a congregation and are men of nature, uh, of mature leadership skills, who have been appointed to their uh, spiritual conductor, as spiritual conductors. These men are called by various names in the New Testament, as we've studied before. And the names do not mean there is some type of hierarchy in the church. Those names does not, elders and deacons, does not refer to a hierarchy in the church. It speaks of their work. Uh, the names simply see the same men under different aspects of their function in the body of believers. They are called elders, for they are expected to be mature in age and in faith. And you can read about that in 1 Timothy 3, verse 5 and 6. They are also called bishops, because not only elders, but bishops, because uh, they oversee and monitor the spiritual welfare of the church. This verse here teaches as much. Uh, They're called shepherds also, elders, bishops, shepherds. And they're called shepherds because they are charged with the feeding of the church as a shepherd feeds his flock. That's what Paul told the elders uh, that came from Ephesus down to Miletus in Acts 20, verse 28. He told those older men, he said, take heed first to yourself. And that's a man's first obligation is to himself. And so he said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and unto the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you to be overseers. He said, Feed the church of God, which God purchased with God's blood. So they are seen as uh, they are seen at also as stewards over the flock that belongs to the Lord. First Peter five, verse one through three. They're called stewards. In the New Testament church, they were always plural in number, 
and local in function. And here's some scripture if you want to back that up. We're not going to turn over there this morning and look at it. Acts 14, verse 23. <clears throat> Philippians 1, verse 1 and 2. And Titus 1, verse 5 and 6. And therefore the church must not only obey and submit, as that verse said, uh, to their appointed leaders, they must know them and highly regard them for their work's sake. Now they'll just be men with feet of clay like everybody else. But your regard for them is because of their work in feeding, in shepherding, in leading uh, uh, God's children. Verse 18, he says, Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in, uh, in every way. So he just verifies that his message is one of sincerity, it's one of truth. And he says in verse uh, 20, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant uh, brought back from the dead of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now this phrase here in this verse in Greek is a doxology, that's all it is. Dox in Greek means glory. And it's kind of a closing remark that is characteristic of all New Testament epistles, especially those of the Apostle Paul. The author launched into a final expression, an outpouring of praise and gratitude unto God. As he said, may the God of peace make you perfect in every way. That is a prayer begun in this verse that the writer can confidently speak of peace with God is a tribute to the priestly ministry of Christ, for he was sent by God to restore the peaceful relationship uh, relationships that existed in Eden. And so in Christ is a foretaste of Eden, the, relation, the communion with God, the relationship with God, the walking with God, the right to uh, present our plea to God. Sin had destroyed that beautiful fellowship between God and man there in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. Now that Christ has uh, finished his great sacrificial work at Calvary, the fact is the cause of the great outpouring of praise and gratitude for the saving work done through Jesus Christ. So it's a doxology. It's a, it's a statement of an acclamation of praise. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the work of Christ centered around his great high priestly ministry. But in this context, Jesus is exalted in that verse as the great shepherd of the sheep. <clears throat> Such terminology is very significant to Hebrew people.
God has always been known as the shepherd. And Israel, the sheep, is his flock. The beautiful shepherd psalm, Psalms 23, just calls to mind the way God has provided Messiah as a shepherd of the new era. Remember Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and in view of that I shall not want. And then he talks about his leadership. He leads me beside the green pastures and the calm waters. He restores my soul. And he goes on talking about the shepherdship of Jesus. Jesus Christ himself maintains that same providential care to lead his people to greener pastures and still waters and to provide protection even when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. As in Psalms 23, Christians should not be afraid nor should fear any evil because their shepherd priest is always with them. We'll see that a little clearer, I think, this morning in our lesson. Never alone, never forsaken. That's the title of the sermon this morning. <clears throat> his rod and his staff will comfort them, as Proverbs, as Psalms 23 says. He provides all of their needs. Messiah is that great provider that uh, maintains a shepherd's care for his people. Read John 15 sometime, and you'll find that the great shepherd is one that lays down his life for his sheep. In verse 4, he will lead his sheep forward. He will put them out to pasture, and he will lead them. And so the writer wishes to bring together the priestly function of Messiah and his uh, shepherding care over the people and to give them a sense of stability and of security in a period of severe transition, opposition, and persecution. And so regardless of what we face in life, uh, it's our duty as a soldier to look to our commander and recognize his uh, shepherdship of our life and the benefits of suffering and uh, of persevering in, in bad situations. Uh, the blood of the eternal covenant was shed by the shepherd to cover the sins of the sheep. And of course that's Zechariah 7 verse 13 and 14 where the word and the will of God broke the silence of that day with a never-to-be-forgotten cry. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, saith Jehovah. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And so God at Calvary unsheathed his sword of justice. And that's what Jesus quotes that very verse in Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 26, and he quotes that as what happened at Calvary. There God unsheathed his sword of justice, and Jesus answered for our sins. As God smite that shepherd, that chosen shepherd that would lead us uh, to victory. The fact that God brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus 
stands to confirm his present reign in heaven and his future coming after his people to take them home. Verse 21, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he says, may the God of peace equip you in every good thing, that God always expects his people to serve him in a truth consistently taught in the word of God. But he equips his people with all the essential gifts uh, to accomplish what he expects. In Philippians 2 and verse 13, Paul states that it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's God that gives you the will to do it and the way to do it and what to do. He's the director. He's the shepherd. When God demands uh, ministries of his people, uh, he provides the equipment that they need to accomplish the task. God is actively working in the lives of Christians. We lose sight of that, don't we? We, we just, maybe we never seen it before. But I think we'll see it a little clearer in the sermon this morning, so I'll leave that there. He's not an absent, uh, absentee sovereign. Uh, he did return to heaven, but he has not forgotten his people. Jesus was made uh, functionally perfect in the fulfillment of his mission. And now he's making his people functionally perfect in accomplishing the ministries he wants us to perform. Uh, those could be ministries of praise to him for redemption in their spiritual sacrifices of worship. Or they could be ministries of service unto his people through doing good and sharing with others our resources and in doing good works as, <clears throat> as another form of service to God. The purpose of all praise and worship uh, it is to give glory forever and ever to Christ who is worthy of all such devotions. Uh, eternally, uh, uh, eternity is in view in this verse. For there will forever be in heavenly circles those who praise and glorify Messiah. But in the meantime, he is still the object of proper respect, gratitude, and worship. Verse 22. He says, Brothers, I urge you to hear, to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. And so this book is normally considered to be an explanation of the priesthood of Christ. It is uh, held to be a treatise on the redemptive activity of Messiah that they knew from the Old Testament uh, prophecies. Uh, but, <clears throat> but here the author defines the purpose of the book as an exhortation 
That's what he said in that verse. It's an exhortation. And he calls the entire message a word. He then mentions that he has only written a short letter. If one should try to sum up the life of Jesus and explain his priestly ministry and the sacrificial functions that he performs, performed and the way in which he continues to minister to the benefits of that one-time-for-all-time sacrifice at Calvary and then consider the way that he has structured the new sanctuary and is presently presently ministering on our behalf in that sanctuary and the way that he has inaugurated and maintains a new covenant relationship with his people and then consider the arguments made for his humanity and his divinity then really this is a short letter isn't it it's like trying to present a sermon about any aspect of God or the Lord Jesus Christ, an hour is actually an insult to try to explain any aspect about God. All you can do is just kind of point at it and say, look at that. That's about all you can do. Uh, how could you sum up a life like that in 13 brief chapters? It is amazing. It is quite evident that the book has to be a product of revelation because there's no way that any uninspired man could describe, define, and interrelate all of the qualities of the priesthood of Christ into one brief book like this, even though it's a short letter. We must agree with Solomon who said, of making many books there is no end. Yet this book began beautifully and was concluded gloriously. This is an amazing treatise, the book of Hebrews. It is a masterpiece of exhortation. It presents the plan of the ages that has been accomplished and worked out through Christ Jesus. And the writer calls it an exhortation, exhorting these Hebrews, not to go back to that old system that was defunct, that had fulfilled its mission, its purpose. It had ended. It was over. And the, old, the prophets prophesied repeatedly about it, didn't they? Because they kept referring in their prophecies of it shall come to pass in the last days. Who do you, who do you suppose he was writing to? Jews. And what was he writing about? their last days and what was going to happen in the last days like in Joel 2 uh, in the last days God of heaven will pour out his spirit upon all flesh that meant something to the Jew to recognize that his days were numbered his end was approaching and when Jesus <laughs> came he came to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament in those last days. He told him in his first sermon on the mount, Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18. He 
He said, Think not that I've come to destroy the law and prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto thee, until heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, and that's the smallest mark in the Hebrew language, shall not fail until all be fulfilled. Did Jesus fulfill all prophecy? That's exactly what he said there and many other places that we're not going to go into this morning, but that's what he said there. He was came to fulfill. And so the exhortations uh, does come through loudly and clearly, the exhorting of these Jews. When one considers Jesus, he will not depart from him. Look at Jesus because that will exhort you. Look at his priesthood. That will exhort you. Look at his deity. You will have to be impressed with the fact that God gave up the glories of heaven to come down to the earth to endure what we are now willing to endure in order that we may be saved. One must consider that. It will exhort him. Consider his humanity. He so completely identified with the human family that he was subjected to all the trials and the sufferings, the persecutions, the oppositions, having at the same time the same amb uh, ambitions and desires and feelings and appetites that you and I have. We don't consider that a lot of times. We think, oh, he was Jesus. He is the Son of God. He was a man. He felt, he desired, uh, as we do, the things of this world. And he had to make a decision about all of it, just like you and I have to make a decision of who we serve. It's either God or mammon. And the Lord said, you can't serve both of them. Mammon being riches. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll despise the one and cleave to the other, but you cannot, he said. You cannot serve God and mammon. Uh, and yet he stood whole. He was firm in his integrity and never once gave in to the enemy force. Uh, that has to impress any reader and he will be exhorted. That must exhort any serious student of Jesus' life. He resisted unto blood in his struggle against sin. One must be exhorted by a study of the life of Jesus Christ. And so the Hebrew writer says, this whole book has been one continuous exhortation. Exhortation grows out of what Jesus has done and is doing. Is his work finished yet? No, it's not. Because... What did we learn that he's doing in heaven? He's interceding in our behalf. Uh, many at the right hand of God. Many were leaving the church in, in the day this book was written. And the same is happening in the church today. Generally, they leave Christ because uh, before they leave the church. That is the reason the writer insists that everyone consider Jesus, chapter 3, verse 1. And then again in chapter 12, verse 4, the readers 
are encouraged to consider him. People leave the church when they lose their loyalty to Christ. For in some way he has lost his winsome in their faith or lack of faith. They have lost their touch with reality because he is invisible. They have lost the <coughs> foundation of faith and they need to come back and to renew Jesus as a center and the focus of their attention and to build their convictions out of the illustrations and the demonstrations that God has given by which our faith can be and is established. The writer does a beautiful job of exhorting his people uh, that are on the verge of apostasy from Jesus. And so the whole book is an exhortation that is still as valid as a source of uh, reclamation of those that are turning away today. When people leave the church, what can be done to get them back? Uh, can they be brought back? It is clear the author thinks they can. And a clear view of Christ is the best tool for accomplishing their restoration. Hebrews is really the essence of Christianity. It is Christ alone who has uh, the power, holds the power over a person's faith. It will bring back the prodigal, the prodigal son. It will bring back the wanderer. It will bring back those that are straying from Christ and from the church and from their responsibilities. That's why it's the book of exhortation. Verse 22. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come and with him to see you. Now this verse gives a bit of comfort to the thought that the book was written uh, to Palestinian Christians. The author wants to leave the imperial city and come visit the brethren, perhaps in the area of Palestine. Palestinian Christians would be most familiar with all the tasks, the talk about temple activities <coughs> that's in the book. They would be most vulnerable to the dangers of the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. And they were more closely associated with the glorious beginnings of the church on the day of Pentecost. The writer had reminded them uh, more than once of their former strong devotions in Christ and in the church. And so it may be that this book was initially sent to the churches in the region of Jerusalem and its inversions. Uh, uh, Verse 24. Greet all uh, your leaders and all of God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Those leaders were mentioned in verse 17 that we started with this, this evening, uh, this morning. Special thanks and deep appreciation for the diligent work God's leaders do for the stabilization of the church. Those from Italy send you their greetings. 
This is the place of origin of the letter. And the author is careful to acknowledge the international brotherhood of the church in that verse. Verse 25, grace be with you all. It would be worth mentioning two or three final observations uh, on the book of Hebrews. One of all the discussions in the book of Hebrews about the Aaronic high priests and ordinary Levitical priests and extensive attention to the priesthood of Christ, yet he never once referred to Christians as priests. There are other New Testament writings that refer to Christians as priests. Now, maybe you've never saw yourself as a priest, but you are. A priest is what one who offers sacrifice, and that's what we do. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, verse 9. Revelation 1, 5. <clears throat> Revelation uh, 5, 10. Revelation 20, verse 6. These verses mention the universal priesthood of believers in Christ. There is a possible explanation that is suggested. The whole book is dedicated to the priesthood of Christ. His priestly position is central to the Hebrew letter. And uh, though he does not mention our priesthood, he does assume it. And he does tell us to offer up sacrifice, sacrifices of praise to God continually. And we have learned in Hebrews 5 and verse 3 that every priest is appointed to offer gifts. And so if we are called on to offer gifts, then he is assigning to us the function of priests, whether he calls us priests or not. We do have an altar where we have a right to eat, Hebrews 13, verse 10. And he is talking about the rights of priests under the law of Moses. And every Christian is a priest. And we have a right to eat at the altar of Calvary because we've been uh, evaluated to the dignity of priests. We are not Melchizedekian priests. There's only one that is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that is Jesus Christ. But we are priests, and so the writer assumes that we do have the privilege of functioning as priests, and he doesn't have to call us priests for us to be elevated to, that, to the dignity uh, of priests. Then in the final analysis, he does, uh, he does not have to present every biblical doctrine concerning Christ's worship, Christian worship and all of the adequate terminology that would be fitting, fitted with that function. Other writers of the New Testament will present that terminology and definitions of Christians as priests. And so the writer does not wish to detract the thinking of his readers from the central 
figure of his book, which is the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He will leave it to other inspired writers to develop the theme of Christian priesthood. There is one final question that needs to be asked. Why did the author never mention the Gentiles? Because they are not a part of his emphasis. His emphasis is the new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Hebrews chapter 8, remember? And so where does the Gentiles fit into the picture? The Gentile is included in the uh, Abrahamic covenant recorded in Genesis 13.3 and 15.6 and 22.18 because what did God tell Abraham and his descendants? In thy seed who's going to be blessed? Just the Jews? All nations will be blessed. All nations. And so God's plan of salvation was for all nations. But we don't see the Gentiles being uh, brought in until Acts 10, when God prepared Peter to go to the house of Cornelius. Uh, it was there that God promised Abraham, in you and in your seed will all nations of the earth be blessed. The Gentile is brought into the picture in the Abrahamic covenant and not the Jewish nor the Mosaic covenant. That's why the Gentiles are not mentioned in this letter, this epistle. We never were a part of it, and it was never a part of our lives, being Gentiles. We are not obligated to observe any of the commandments of the law of Moses. And so that law has nothing to do with us as Gentiles. If you are interested in finding where the Gentiles enter into the picture, do not look for it in the book of Hebrews. That is, uh, that it is not the stress of the Hebrew writer. He's writing to people that came out of the Jewish religion. The place to find the Gentiles is in the redemptive work of Christ in the book of Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. It is clear that the writer takes the blood of Christ all the way back to the Garden of Eden in its redemptive work. In chapter 9, verse 26. And so, this is a marvelous book. And we close our study with the final five words of the Hebrew writer himself. I pray that God will bless you and you will receive the material again and again and see the beauty of Jesus himself. And the writer closes with these words, Grace be with you all. And that's the book of Hebrews. And we've got to finish right on time. What are you looking up here for? It's over. <laughs> Conrad, where's that vest? Is that all?
club, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs>